This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. I am standing in front of the Sanford Meisner Theater in Chelsea, right next to the West Side Highway and across the highway from the giant Chelsea Piers Entertainment Complex. This is a pretty nondescript building I'm standing in front of. It's kind of a run-down brownstone-type building that's pretty typical of the architecture of the neighborhood. But this building, all the way over on the west side at 23rd and 11th, was once the center of a world that is now all but vanished. That's because this building once housed the headquarters of the International Longshoremen's Association, Local 791. And that union was at the center of a whole society that lived squashed up against the west side waterfront. You might be familiar with the culture of New York's ports from the 1954 movie On the Waterfront. That film was based on a series of articles that appeared in the old New York Sun in 1948 and that won the Pulitzer Prize in 1949. In the first of those articles, journalist Malcolm Johnson described a waterfront as an outlaw frontier where criminal gangs whose greatest weapon is terror operate with apparent immunity from the law. That's a big change from the dog park across the street. But it wasn't all corrupt union bosses and rackets on the waterfront. At its height, tens of thousands of men worked on the docks and lived in the neighborhoods next to them with their wives and their children. Today, some of the old piers have fallen into the Hudson River, and others, like the Chelsea Piers, have been rebuilt for recreation. But on Fordham Conversations this morning, we're going back in time to explore that vanished world. My guest on the show today is James Fisher. Fisher's a professor of theology and American studies at Fordham, and for the last several years, he's been looking at the social and work and religious lives of New York's longshoremen, and he's written a book about it. That book, which is forthcoming from Cornell University Press, is On the Irish Waterfront, The Crusader, The Movie, and the Soul of the Port of New York. Fisher joined me in the studio earlier this week to talk about the recent, but lost, world of New York City's waterfront. James Fisher, welcome. It's good to be back. Now, I think it's safe to say that in New York City, change is really the only constant when it comes to geography. When we talk about the world of the city's ports, though, we are talking about a world that is actually physically gone. I want to know about that world. So let's start with where and when it was. The working piers on the west side of Manhattan were dominant from the 1890s until 10 years or so after World War II, until the middle of the 1950s. What then happened was the famous uh, containerization revolution. In fact, containerization was really the only significant technological innovation in the Port of New York and New Jersey for a century, from the Civil War really until the late 1950s, 1960s. There had been very little technological innovation. Suddenly, we had this revolutionary, dramatically changed mode, which we call containerization, in which goods were uh, packed at the point of production in these tr- rail cars, which could then be placed on tr- on trains or on trucks or on ships. And that changed everything because, among other things, container cars required much larger floating vessels, <laughs> container ships, to convey them. And those container ships were much, much too large for the finger piers that completely dominated the west side of Manhattan and the piers over in Hudson County, New Jersey, in Hoboken and Jersey City. So there was a huge geographic shift in the epicenter, the center of gravity in the port from the west side of Manhattan and Hudson County, New Jersey, over to these new enormous container ports that the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey operated in the new ports of Newark and Elizabeth. Not that they were new as ports, but they were new as container ports, which the Port Authority had presciently acquired on very favorable terms back in the 1940s and 50s. Okay, back to the sort of waterfront era. 
Can you locate for me the port and the port neighborhoods sort of geographically? Where did it start and where did it end, not only up and down, but also to the east? Sure. If you begin, say, South Street on the Lower East Side, and then you begin to move kind of around under the southern tip of Manhattan to the Lower West Side, and then you begin to move north from there so that you move from the Lower, Lower West Side, then you move to the West Village, then you move up to Chelsea, which really becomes the heart and soul of the port for 50 years from 1900 to 1950. And then the northern terminus of the port in, the, in Manhattan was Hell's Kitchen in the West 40s and 50s. It seems like it was sort of a geographically bounded area in a lot of ways. Is that true? To say it's separated from the communities to its east, in the case of the west side of Manhattan, is, is more than just a geographical statement because the waterfront communities were almost entirely estranged physically from the inland of Manhattan because there were this enormous tangle of rail yards and saloons and uh, union meeting halls and very um, scary, you might say, daunting places, which um, the average citizen would not likely brave uh, crossing that threshold. And so the world was much more separate than you can imagine today, where the waterfront is so accessible and is part of the whole recreational and residential infrastructure of the city. In those days, the waterfronts on both sides of the Hudson River, Hudson County, New Jersey, and Manhattan, were really quite separate, and that created a wholly separate kind of political, cultural, economic, religious nexus. And I want to talk more about that in a minute. But let me ask you, if I'm a person who lives in this neighborhood at that time, if I'm a longshoreman or the daughter or wife of a longshoreman or whatever, what are the big landmarks that I see every day in my neighborhood? If you lived in a waterfront neighborhood, if you lived in Chelsea or if you lived in Hell's Kitchen or if you lived in West, the West Village, the landmarks would often be um, the Roman Catholic Church, which is the permanent, really the permanent institution in those communities. St. Veronica's on Christopher Street in the West Village, still there, really the only enduring landmark from the waterfront era. Uh, St. Bernard's on 14th Street in Chelsea, still there. Guardian Angel, 10th Avenue and West 21st Street uh, in Chelsea is also still there. Sacred Heart Church, uh, 51st Street between 9th and 10th Avenues in Hell's Kitchen. That was very important. The parish always organized um, the community. But one of the arguments I make in this book on the Irish waterfront is that the peers function kind of like surrogate parishes too, and they organize the community also. They were always ethnically uh, homogeneous, that is, the Irish controlled most of these peers on the west side, and they almost functioned like parishes. And so for the men, of course, you know, the, me- the men who worked on the peers, and very virtually no, I would even say no women that we know of really worked on the peers in the first half of the 20th century, the men congregated in the bars and around the peers on the west side. So saloons, longshoremen's local meeting halls, which were generally pretty unauspicious um, infrastructures, and then the piers themselves, you know, and the neighborhoods surrounding the piers. Those were basically the markers, you know, that designated this as waterfront terrain. How and why did these neighborhoods develop into the kinds of places that they did? I mean, in many ways, the organization of labor and life and residential patterns on the, on the port of New York and New Jersey, it mirrored the way in which industrial communities were organized throughout the United States, particularly after the so-called Industrial Revolution of the mid-19th century, which was mostly peopled by uh, immigrant workers who came from um, first Northern Europe and then Southern and Eastern Europe in later years. And they tended to 
follow patterns that have been established by other people from not only their own country, but more commonly from their own parish or their own village, or in many cases, even their own family. And that was certainly the case, um, say, in the west side of Manhattan. For example, almost all of the tugboat captains who worked on the west side, they weren't just Irish Americans who came from, say, the west of Ireland. They all came from the same community uh, in the same county, in the same part of Ireland. That's how closely knit these communities were. And so um, the waterfront was like a lot of industrial places in which it kind of coalesced or congregated or coagulated, you might say, these kind of uh, immigrant workers. It's just that um, because the New York waterfront was such a separate kind of enclave, these communities endured longer. That is, they remained more ethnically homogeneous and more tribal, you might say, for longer than did many other immigrant working class communities. Let's talk a little bit about what people's everyday lives were like in the, say, in the in the west side of Manhattan ports, if you lived around there and if you were of that world. What was your everyday life like? It's amazing how many people have looked into the world of waterfront, say, family, waterfront communities, waterfront neighborhoods. There's so little we really know. Let me tell you how and why that is. The reason we know very little about the everyday lives, particularly of longshoremen's families, is again because they they lived in these communities that, that had become culturally isolated from the rest of the region. Who took an interest in them? Not all that many people. One, though, one kind of community or cohort of New Yorkers did take an interest in the lives of dock workers and their families. And those are people, oftentimes women, reformers from almost entirely from Anglo-Saxon Protestant backgrounds, occasionally from Jewish backgrounds, who worked as settlement house workers or social workers who basically had a vocation or profession to try to help ease the adaptation of immigrant workers to the new community. So, in the three dominant Irish waterfront neighborhoods, Chelsea, Hell's Kitchen, and Greenwich Village, you had three very prominent um, settlement houses. Probably the best known was Greenwich House and Greenwich Village. And these um, settlement houses in the 1920s and 30s began to sponsor kind of sociological studies of the everyday lives of dock workers and particularly their families. And so we do have a kind of a, a limited kind of literature, which is very you know biased in many ways and tends to look askance at the religion and the culture of these dock workers and their families, but does provide a little bit of a, um, of a snapshot. And among the conclusions, of course, that were f- discerned by these settlement house workers, sometimes to their shock and horror, um, longshoremen's families tended to be very large, they had very large families with lots of children. The children generally went to work early. There was very little opportunity for um, for education beyond a rudimentary period of years. Longshoremen themselves, it was very unusual to find a dock worker in the 1920s or 30s or 40s who had a high school degree, for example. So if their children were to attain a high school degree, that would have been considered pretty remarkable. Now, in fact, as time went by, not only did the children of some longshoremen begin to achieve uh, high school degrees, but many indeed went on to college. And in fact, it was it, it, in many ways it, it did mirror the kind of upwardly mobile story of American eth- ethnicity. But it took a pretty long time. The other thing that was most striking, of course, about longshoremen's neighborhoods is that the work was 
unreliable. And this is a big difference between being a working class factory worker and a working class dock worker. The wife of a working class factory worker could at least generally count on some kind of regular income, however meager that might be. If you're a dock worker's wife, there were entire weeks in which you knew you weren't going to have any money coming in. And that meant you had to plan and stretch and save and be resourceful in ways that you wouldn't need to be if you had a regular source of income. So that meant that the lives of these dock workers' families could be quite extraordinarily precarious. On the Irish waterfront, there was also a ubiquitous uh, phenomena of alcoholism, which had enormous impact on families and family lives. The dock workers are also very susceptible to agencies of organized crime, from loan sharks uh, to bookmakers to saloon keepers to all kinds of um, ancillary social services, you might say, which kind of filled in in the absence, say, of a police presence or in the absence of social welfare programs that were made available to workers in other industries. These precarious uh, waterfront family lives were often influenced by these kind of extra-legal or illegal institutions like the loan shark, who would, of course, make money available to a family who might not be able to expect any income for weeks at a time. So uh, it was a very precarious uh, lifestyle and existence in which violence, but I would have to say, and domestic violence is an issue that at least, at least is uh, anecdotally appeared to be a very significant issue. All kinds of insecurities wrought of the economic precariousness of longshoremen's lives had a big impact on life over there. There's no other union in the country would stand for a thing like that. The waterfront's tougher, Father. Like an ain't part of America. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty, talking to you from Manhattan's far west side. Today on the show, we're looking at the world of Manhattan's longshoremen. Up until the 1950s, the ports of Manhattan, New Jersey, and Brooklyn were some of the busiest in the world, and some of the most corrupt and roughest and that corruption and roughness were the subjects of a Pulitzer Prize-winning series of articles and the film On the Waterfront. I'm talking today on the show with James Fisher. Fisher's the author of a forthcoming book about the world of the waterfront and its undoing. Let's get back to that conversation. So into this environment, you have stepping a priest who does not really agree with the way that things are run, but who can't quite get in there to change things. Tell me about Phil Carey. Yes, Father Phil Carey was uh, a young Jesuit. He was ordained in the um, in the 1930s. He was a product of not the Lower West Side, but of, of the Bronx in a day when the Bronx was practically rural. He grew up in really kind of a small town environment in the East Bronx. On the other hand, his father was a subway motorman, a conductor, and uh, he worked very, very long hours uh, in another industry that was very, very dangerous. Uh, So Philip Carey knew something about the perils and the precariousness of industrial life in New York City. When he was ordained in the late 1930s, he was sent to what was known at the time as the Xavier Labor School, which was created in the parish on West 16th Street on the eastern edge of the Chelsea neighborhood. Uh, in the late 1930s. Now, the thing about the Xavier Labor School, it was part of a big network of Jesuit and other Roman Catholic labor schools that were designed primarily to combat the influence of communists in the labor movement. And again, talking about the CIO and the organizing campaigns of the 1930s, the fact is there were very, very large numbers of communists in the New York City area really active in the labor movement. They understood that the Roman Catholic Church was their natural enemy, and the church likewise shared very much shared that understanding there's a militant conflict between them. So Phil Carey figures, okay, he's here to help fight 
communism in the labor industry, your labor movement, and he's very pleased to do so. Well, something happened in 1941. A group of longshoremen came to him, and they said, you're supposed to be a labor priest. you got to help us start a legitimate union. He said, oh, sure, I'll be happy to help because I now see that you're not being well represented. Well, no sooner did he make that pledge within days, if not hours, this incredible array of powers and principalities came down on his head. The church, Tammany Hall, the Longshoremen's Union, even figures from Washington, D.C., who worked in the New Deal, Franklin D. Roosevelt, they said to Phil Carey, look, this isn't how we do things. And then finally, most indignantly of all, this Monsignor John J. O'Donnell from his crosstown rival parish, Guardian Angel, quite explicitly threatened Father Carey with the destruction of his labor school. Now, that's 1941. And Father Phil Carey got the message. Uh, he, did abs- he did not interfere or intervene on the waterfront for another five years. Uh, during World War II, of course, things quieted down a bit and the scene changed a bit. After the war, though, there was another kind of insurgency, a much stronger insurgency of rank-and-file dock workers. And by now, by 1946, Philip A. Carey had hired or had assigned to his labor school a younger Jesuit from New York City, a man named John Corridan, who is sort of the hero of this uh, of the book and the saga of the Irish waterfront. Tell me about him. He's also known as Pete Corridan, right? Yeah, Father Corridan was known as John. Like Phil Carey, interestingly enough, he went to the Regis High School, which is for since the 19th century has been an all-scholarship uh, boys Jesuit high school. Uh, when Pete Corden was ordained in 1944, he was then assigned a couple of years later to the Xavier Labor School. And Father Carey said to him, Pete, and he was called Pete because in those days there were so many Jesuits in New York uh, and so many Jesuits everywhere in the United States that when he was in the s- seminary, there were like dozens of Jesuits named John. There wasn't anybody named Pete, so they said, to, we're going to call you Pete from now on. And that's how he was always known in, in the Jesuits thereafter. Uh, Phil Carey said, I want to assign you to a waterfront apostolate, which has been crying out to be launched, but we've never been able to achieve. Now, it's not clear to me whether he told Father Corrigan what had happened to him five years earlier when he had been threatened with total destruction. On the other hand, he told Father Corrigan to take some time in fact, he took almost two years, what the Jesuits like to call discernment, that is studying the conditions on the waterfront, the economics, the politics, the labor, which Corden did for two years, very, very quietly behind the scenes. He learned everything he could. He made these extremely valuable connections. Then, finally, in November of 1948, the same month, two really, really significant things happened that changed everything for all times. The first was Father Corden decided to speak out publicly for the first time, not on the west side where he lived and worked because it was too dangerous to speak out publicly there. He, he, he quietly slipped over to Jersey City and gave a speech called A Catholic Looks at the Waterfront, in which he really dressed down um, the employers and more, even more pointedly the dock workers' union representatives for failing to provide for the Christian social justice that not only were the workers entitled to, but the Roman Catholic Church now, in fact, officially uh, endorsed and subscribed to. Secondly, in that same month, a journalist named Malcolm Johnson, a non-Catholic, a Protestant from from Georgia, rather, launched a series of investigative stories in the old New York Sun, 
under the title Crime on the Waterfront. And within a few days of this 24-installment series, Father Corden uh, um, reached out to Malcolm Johnson, and they basically began to collaborate secretly behind the scenes. And Corden supplied Johnson with these voluminous files, many of which I've seen, and I can tell you, they were incredibly detailed accounts of peer-by-peer-by-peer operations, who were the mobsters in charge, who had been killed, who paid off who, and how did things operate. And Malcolm Johnson suddenly totally ripped open this code of silence and this kind of lid that had covered the waterfront for decades, chapter and verse with photos, with empirical evidence, incredible detailed accounts over 24 episodes that earned him the Pulitzer Prize in 1949 and ensconced our father, Pete Corden, as the waterfront priest, um, the world's leading authority on crime and punishment and politics in the Port of New York and New Jersey, and uh, basically made him a celebrity and a figure that had to be reckoned with for the next five years as he conducted this crusade, which is really what it was, a militant crusade on behalf of longshoremen and their families between 1948 and 1954. So in a nutshell, what came out of all of this? Well, what came out of Pete Corden's crusade uh, on the waterfront was most significantly from his perspective— the code of silence was, if not obliterated, the code of silence was severely undermined. For decades, longshoremen had been denied, really, the right. They'd been denied to write to see what they'd seen and hear what they'd heard and say what they wanted to say, or maybe they didn't even know what they wanted to say anymore. Well, Corden said to them, you must speak up and describe the reality of your lives because people will be shocked and scandalized, and that'll lead to change. You'll have better working conditions. You'll get a democratic union. The gangsters and mobsters will be thrown off the piers, and you'll have a new day will dawn for you and your families, to which... The workers almost overwhelmingly said, no thanks. <laughs> we, prefer, we prefer to uh, maintain life as we know it rather than take our chance with outsiders, including, they suggested, like you, Father Corridan, who then, of course, by 1948 and 49 said, well, they're not going to cooperate with me. I'm not going to give up. I'll take this campaign off the waterfront and create these alliances with non-Catholics like Malcolm Johnson and like Bud Schulberg, who's going to write the film on the waterfront, and like Governor Thomas E. Dewey, a Republican Protestant governor of the state of New York. Between the winter, uh, the fall of 1952, winter of 19. 1953, Governor Dewey's New York State Crime Commission conducted these incredibly spectacular public hearings in which all these mugs and gangsters and many ordinary rank-and-file longshoremen were subpoenaed to appear and answer pointed questions put to them. Now, many of them invoked their constitutional right to avoid self-incrimination, but even taking the fifth for these powerful, daunting waterfront chieftains was a sign, was taken as a kind of a sign of weakness. Just the fact they even had to stand up and take the fifth. Many others answered questions. Many later probably wish they had not because the workings of the waterfront now were thoroughly exposed, even more so than had Malcolm Johnson in his 24-part expose in the newspaper. Every morning when the hiring boss blows his whistle, Jesus stands alongside you in the shape-up. He sees why some of you get picked and some of you get passed over. He sees the family men worrying about getting the rent and getting food in the house for the wife and the kids. He sees you selling your souls to the mob for a day's pay. The next bum that throws something deals with me. I don't care if he's twice my size. Now, what does Christ think of the easy money boys who do none of the work and take all of the gravy? And how does he feel about the fellas who wear $150 suits and diamond rings? on you union dues and your kickback money. And how does he 
who spoke up without fear against every evil. Feel about your silence. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. Good morning, I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with James Fisher. So things are changing, but things are also changing in another sense, which is that the ports are basically on their way out. What happened and what happened to these neighborhoods once this kind of life wasn't sustainable anymore? The period really of the mid to late 50s is an era of great decline in on the west side and in Hudson County, New Jersey. And there's nothing any priest or politician or labor figure or visionary can do about it. It's an impersonal economic reality that technology is transforming the port. You get these declining dock worker communities in which the need for longshoremen themselves is greatly reduced because of technological innovation, which means that you know only a few highly skilled longshoremen are going to be needed to handle the cranes and the containerization process. And here's, again, a, f- a really quite remarkable paradox that comes out of this. What do the longshoremen finally get by the 1960s? Their profession is rendered virtually obsolete. You go from 60,000 longshoremen in the port to 1,500 or 2,000. Well, you're going to have all these unemployed older men wandering around forlornly in the neighborhood without it. They didn't have good pension plans or things of that kind. A deal was made out between um, uh, various interests, crafted a deal, which became known as the guaranteed annual income. Anyone who'd worked in the port for a given period of time was grandfathered in to a process whereby, even though there was no work for them, they would still be paid a wage. All they had to do was show up and punch in, and then they could go off and do whatever they wanted. Many of them would go to the racetrack. They could do And it was, in some ways, it was seen as, some many workers, it was like, hallelujah, it's like the utopia has arrived. From the perspective of these Jesuit labor priests, interestingly enough, this was seen as a terrible defeat because their whole strategy was always to promote a concept of dignity of labor. That is, men and women are made by God to work in meaningful vocations in the world and almost to achieve a kind of a salvation, you might say, through dignity of working conditions and dignity of their own toil. Um, well, there's no such dignity of toil for men who are being paid not to work. It's one of those very strange ironies and paradoxes, which again separated the rank-and-file dock workers from those who claim to be their champions or their crusaders. And that went on. And to this day, of course, there are still some older dock workers who are still working under the guaranteed income. Very few now, rapidly dwindling, and soon that will all be in the past. But in fact, yes, the story that I tell in my book is a story of human struggle, of religion and politics and the labor movement. But in fact, in the end, it's an impersonal, technological, economic market situation that completely transforms not only the waterfront, but the lives of all the people herein. If we go down to the waterfront area now, what do we see? Oh, I'd love to take you down there. <laughs> I take tours all the time with students and others. Um, and it's, of course, it's a, it's a double-edged thing. I mean, you see what's there today. I bring photographs and other visual documentation so people understand how very, very different it is. I often start at the pier the recreational pier that Donald Trump built at the foot of 69th and West 70th Streets because it is right near some actual relics of the Port of New York, that is a float bridge, 
uh, which was used to transfer goods by rail that were shipped over by on barges that had rails on the barges. It's really remarkable. You see some piers that are tangled and 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 half submerged in the Hudson River. Many of them burned down in the 1970s. And of course, when I was a kid in the 70s, nobody even knew anything was over there. The West Side Highway obscured the view and all that. Well, in the 80s and 90s, we began this reclamation of the waterfront. And it's absolutely astounding. If you walk from Hell's Kitchen down to the West Village, I could take you down to Pier 51, for example. The control of Pier 51 became um, the, the basis for a very notorious waterfront murder that was committed in Greenwich Village in 1947. A pier hiring boss called Andy Heinz was shot in broad daylight by three assailants because he refused to give over the control of that pier to these Irish uh, mobsters named Johnny Dunn and two of his confederates. It's a playground today. Pier 51 is a maritime-themed playground. You go down to Pier 45 at the foot of Christopher Street, in the West Village. It's this really popular sunbathing, uh, (laughs) grassy sunbathers pier that you see thousands of people out there any given day when the weather's warm. It was a really violent site of waterfront conflict. People were killed there. They were thrown in the river. They were never seen again because of the struggle for control of the pier, because of a struggle that some insurgents down in the village had to achieve union democracy against very daunting odds. So all up and down the west side, and the same is true in what we call the Gold Coast in Hudson County, New Jersey, these former sites of really violent drama that was often totally unknown to the citizenry of the metropolitan area, they've all been transformed into these lovely, serene, placid, and very appealing uh, recreation areas. And so it's a really dramatic story. It's it's just one of those classic examples, though, as so often happens in the New York area, where one world disappears, it's completely gone, it's stripped away, and another world takes its place with seemingly little or no connection to the one that preceded it. Well, Jim Fisher is a professor of theology and American studies at Fordham, and his forthcoming book is On the Irish Waterfront, The Crusader, The Movie, and the Soul of the Port of New York. Jim, thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks for having me, Nora. Thank you. From WFUV and from the very loud but not at all scary far west side, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at fordhamconversations at wfuv.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at wfuv.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.